Welcome to Root Words, a podcast that explores agriculture and cooking's role in connecting us to our landscape and our communities. I'm Stephen Abatel. Root Words is a collaboration between Vermont Farmers Food Center, Shrewsbury Agricultural Education and Arts Foundation, Shrewsbury Historical Society, WEXP, and many other community members. The project began in 2017 and was made possible by support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as from this community. Throughout this podcast, you're going to be hearing stories from people around the Rutland County region in the heart of Vermont, a region rich in agriculture, family farms, a region that's a pastoral working landscape. These stories are going to be each little windows into what a regional food system really looks like on the community level. We're excited to introduce you to some passionate folks working with the land and with food and bringing communities together. So please pull up a chair and enjoy. In this episode, we'll explore the tree that links so many of us to both community and landscape, the sugar maple. We'll meet farmer Greg Cox to learn a little bit about how the modern maple industry has been shaped. Then we'll meet Jesse Lawyer, an Abnaki chef who's connecting with indigenous foodways. Then later, Grace Brigham hosts a community's Stories from the Sugar Bush. So we are back this episode with Kara Fitzbochamp of Evening Song Farms. How's it going, Kara? It's great. And we have maybe the most uh, most Vermonty episode <laughs> potentially ahead of us here. We're gonna be we're gonna be learning a bit more, hearing a bit more about sugaring. I can't wait. <laughs> have you ever been, <laughs> have you ever been to Terry's uh, Sugar House? Yeah, sugar yeah, house totally. Party? It's delightful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a highlight. Actually, it's one of the first parties we went to when we moved here. That was one where I, 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 I was newly back in the state and mm. I, was, I just felt like I, I have arrived. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Music playing all night. You keep the fire going. To, uh, he, does, he does all the evaporating. He cooks it down mm. all at once in one, mm-hmm. in one party. And yeah, and um, what I liked was taking the little cup and dipping it into the evaporator of this kind of half syrup you know it's not mm-hmm. all the way there so it's yep. still kind of drinkable and it's totally. like a warm mapley tea and you put a little shot of whiskey into it and <laughs> people are playing on the porch and yeah man it's just a good old good old vermont time when i used to collect via buckets mm. i would make sap lemonade for Ooh. the start of the morning i would go out with a ball jar with just a little bit of squeezed lemons in it and then pour my first thing of sap into my lemon Mm. and then use that for the rest of the morning and that was a real treat and a real seasonal treat a real seasonal i like having those things that that center Mm. you in a season you know totally we're again we have seasons here Mm -hmm. and not everybody does yeah um and they have these wonderful little things that might only last a week or two weeks you know Mm -hmm. the sap's only flowing this year i mean the sap only flowed for about four days yeah it was very short um yeah centering nature centering us in our place mm-hmm. when i was um when i was researching when i was reading a little bit about sugaring um for for root words for this project um obviously or maybe not obvious to folks uh european immigrants did not invent sugaring didn't mm-hmm. create it here in this space it has been done for 
many generations, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of years before uh, European settlement to this area. And the oldest written record from a European settler of sugaring happening was up, I believe it was in the upper Midwest area. Mm -hmm. And what they had seen was native people there icing the, the sap. So they had these flat, um, flat like you know bark or wooden containers and it was you know very cold out that time of year in the in, in the oh, spring and they duh. were yeah they were icing it in these yeah, shallow containers which yeah. is now which is now part of the process again in many places yeah. that there's icing or you know similar to the osmosis mm. kind of piece but I thought it just like reading it like oh yeah like obviously that was so an easier way to do it without having to you know you can you can boil in baskets and things mm. if you you know if you take good care of it, sure. but it just made so much sense to make a sweeter product, to make something sweet, a sweet drink, mm -hmm. um, by just icing off the, the water to it. So mm -hmm. I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, and for sure. Cool, cool how it's, yeah, it's developed over the years for many, many people, many different people, different mm -hmm. communities. Over the course of Root Words, we're going to hear from a number of different farmers about their perspectives of agriculture in this region, sometimes giving us some of the historical context. And Greg Cox of Boardman Hill Farm in West Rutland is somebody you're going to hear a lot from. But today we've got Greg giving us some perspective on how we have the maple syrup uh, industry here in Vermont that we have today. Well, when you say Vermont maple syrup, every image that conjures up in your head is because of Bill Clark. Bill Clark took over the Vermont Maple Association as president, was on the board for a long time, and uh, but he became president, I believe in 1969, it might have been 1970. He ran that organization for 32 years, and in the early 70s, the bottom was dropping out of maple. And Bill Clark um, turned that organization around uh, he created the Institute of Maple, uh, the International Institute of Maple um, <clears throat> Syrup, and uh, he works with uh, Canada, some of the largest uh, retailers and corporations dealing with maple, and headed. He was uh, president of that organization for one two-year term. Bill was rising water floats all boats. Bill embraced all the changes that came into maple, from tubing to reverse osmosis. Even as an old timer, when people tend to resist change, Bill embraced change. He and his house is Maple House in Wells, which at one point was the largest uh, evaporator in the state. Uh, started open house there, which now every spring, Maple Open House, all the sugar houses. That's Bill Clark. The man was so innovative and creative and had the vision to see what was needed. Started the farmer's market in Rutland. And he marketed Maple to make it what it is today. He was responsible for that brand. An amazing individual. I feel like so many of our ag discussions are through the like European lens and not, you know, just the way he centered Bill, who is tremendously important and done so much. I was just like, whoa, but this is so relatively recent, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like what 
what shoulders is this process standing on? You know, where did we adapt it from? Where did we learn it from? Those are a lot of fun things to explore. Those are fun things to explore. And to do that, I tracked down Jesse Lawyer, a chef based in Burlington, Vermont, and someone who we hope to have back to this show many times. But thanks for joining us today. Uh, could you could you just start by introducing yourself? Yes, my name is Jesse Lawyer. Uh, I'm an enrolled citizen um, with the Abenaki Nation at Missisquoi. I am the executive chef at Sweetwater's American Bistro in Burlington, Vermont on Church Street. And yeah, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Father Hunter, food sovereignty activist. Um, I work with Chief Don and the Abenaki Land Link Project, and I've been developing recipes for the Abenaki people using our cultivars and wild game and a ver- number of various forage items to bring delicious and healthy meals to the community using our traditional landscape. Yeah, you told me a little bit the other day about um, about your experimental archaeology kind of personal project uh, with with maple. Could you could you just describe that, or you know, talk about your experience with that, and, and just describe what what you did there? So I the first thing I did was uh, I have a large growth of sumac by my house, and I don't know a couple of years ago I I cut down some nice lengths of branches and I started making maple spiles with the uh, hopes to tap the maple trees behind my house in a traditional manner and that kind of got put on hold for with other projects and then this year again you know still in pandemic and thinking about providing for myself I wanted to you know I wanted to make my own syrup and so I started thinking about trying it the traditional way using no seam birch buckets to collect sap and you know cutting holes in the tree with an axe and tapping it with uh either the sumac spiles or little maple shims to collect the sap and put it into the bucket and then boiling it over a fire it's a very specific birch bark um, thickness and I was told it's from the gray birch that you need to make the no seam buckets so that way your uh, your sap bucket doesn't leak. So that's this year's project is to collect enough buckets for maybe like ten trees and or collect enough birch bark for to make buckets for about ten trees and hopefully by next sugaring season I'll be able to you know just to try it out. I usually like in anything I do, whether it's art or cooking, I like to do things by hand first or in the traditional way, just to really get a feel for whatever I'm doing. Not that I'll continue to tap birch trees the traditional way, but it's just nice to know where that came from in the beginning and that you can in fact do it. I just, I just feel it's closer to, any project I do to do it the the hardest way first, I guess. I just, I think it would bring me closer to what I'm doing. Um, you know, kind of walking in my ancestors' footsteps, you know, to see what they had to go through and not that I have to suffer today and, you know, put more work into it than I have to, but it's just, it's nice to be able to see what our ancestors had to go through for, you know, a meal. And at times, you know, during the spring months and into the summer, 
you know, that the maple sugar that was produced because there wasn't a lot of sap or a lot of uh, maple syrup that was produced. It was boiled down to the past, past the point of syrup into sugar packed in birch bark cones. And, you know, that sustained, you know, energy stores in your body for quite a while after that. So it was a lot of work, you know, and to get that little bit of sugar. I just think maple makes everything taste better. You know, I use it at home. I use both syrup and sugar in the restaurant. Any, any time that I can use syrup or sugar, maple sugar, instead of, you know, processed granulated white sugar, I will. I just, I think the flavor is so much better. It's so much better for your body and... Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I just love maple. When family and friends come together in the forest and in the sugar house each spring, they get connected not only to the seasonality and to their landscape, but also to each other. And a lot of stories become the stuff of local legend. So now we'll take you to Shrewsbury's Russellville Schoolhouse for some stories from the sugar bush. So welcome. It's wonderful that so many people came. We even have is it the Allens from all the way up in Florence? No, Allen Mills. Allen Mills. Clear up to Florence, they came down, and that's because they saw the ad in the paper. And then all the rest of us are locals or running people. And I think we ought to probably introduce ourselves. We should. Maybe we could do that first. Yes. Okay. So if we could start with Mr. Smith here. Would you introduce yourself, please, and tell you tell us where your sugar house is? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll have to get up. We have to think because it changed. I live in the center of the town, and my oldest son, Jeff, is now doing the sugar business and beef cattle. I'm not going to get up. I'm B.J. Stewart. Right. (laughs) Do you want to say anything about the Stewart Maple Empire? Yeah, Maple Empire. (laughs) That's great. My son and grandson have got a good operation going in Cuttingsville. They're all welcome to come and look at it at any time. About how many taps? Somewhere around 30,000. Wow. I'm Al Rhythm. I'm down in the village. And we've sugared pretty much ever since the Rhythms have been there in the village. And to my knowledge, there's been four sugar houses. One of them was right where the old barn is now, which burnt back middle 20s and then they built the one up on the side hill up in the so-called pasture up in rose bushes <laughs> uh, that one my father shook it there for a number of years when I was a kid it was always a thousand buckets and uh, where we tapped in those trees have been all logged off well I started tapping trees from Lincoln Weston in the 70s, but I was selling sap then, and I sold sap up here for a while. But then I thought I'd make the big bucks. So I don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you carry on. 
And don't forget fudge. Fudge, yes. Oh, fudge. Well, <laughs> Trish well, makes the, the world that started fudge. We make darker syrup than most people because of the innovations that are the way our cans are set up and the way we boil. Um, and so we tried to find a market for the darker syrup, and the fudge seemed like a good way to, you know, turn it into something that would sell. Could you tell us a little bit about your fame in the New York Times? That was a long time ago. But it's still worth telling. Sometime in the late 90s, uh, the food editor for the New York Times somehow got a hold of some of our fudge. I think she has a summer home in Vermont or something. She got it somewhere. And uh, so I get a call, and she says, well, um, you know, I just wanted to verify your address and everything, because you're going to be in my article next week. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm Lisa and I work at Sterling Ranch with Doug here and he's in charge of sugaring and I just help him out and I do whatever he tells me to do. I never question anything. <laughs> totally docile. Yeah, yeah. We, we never come to, have to a head. I'm just Doug here um, and I work at Spring Lake too. I've been there about 20 years and uh, the, the way we've sugared has uh, changed a little, but uh, not too much. We, we try to keep a lot of hands busy, and in that effort, um, it also means that we try to stay simple. Um, and we do put a lot of buckets up still, because we can collect with 20, 25 hands um, working with us. So this year we had about 1,300 buckets up. Sometimes we do nearly 1,800. Um, and then we've got another 1,500 on tubing. Um, and this interests some people, recently converted from a vacuum system back to gravity. So there's a little backtracking, um, not the normal trajectory that you hear about in sugaring, but for our program, um, actually potentially better. I think that uh, the more we were trying to keep, up, keep on top of our gauges and make sure our water cooling tank was still getting its, you know, feed, um, that the machine was working, uh, we were distracted from working with people. Um, and so the, those little finicky things, um, did, I think they do kind of add up. And, you know, we have a few people that have the knowledge to, to do the, the fixes, um, but those people then are drawn out of roles that they could play in other ways that are more people-based. So, so we're kind of taking a step backward, um, but it's it's kind of forward in its own way for the kind of operation we run. So, for people from away, Spring Lake Ranch is a therapeutic community, and so one of the uh, the theories, or not the theories, but the purposes of the place is to have people get out in in, in the fresh air and work with other people and, and get physically tired and have good food to eat. Does anybody else want to add to that? But, but I can. It's so interesting to think that you've stepped back mm -hmm. to more to more hand hand uh, work instead mm -hmm. of forward to more technology. Mm -hmm. Serve has the it, it exists to serve our program, so yeah, it, it needs to fit the the feel of the people as less than the product. Mm -hmm. I grew up the other side of Syracuse near you know, Snowbelt. We sugared there. We sugared with horses and sleigh. I remember my father blowing with wood. And two big gray Belgians used to get us sack with. I'd be sat on top and, and 
Bob along with that. I can remember that. Uh, Terry Martin, I live in Russellville right here on the corner. Um, I started sugar in, in Michigan. My dad, all my siblings and us would hang bags on trees and boil and uh, milk jugs. Um, I got a little quick story though. One, about three years ago, we were up, it was a couple days after town meeting, we were uh, tapping out and um, Paul Segalia came out and there was probably three, four foot of snow up there and it was a deep one. And uh, his dog come up and we're all standing there and we're chatting and all of a sudden the dog just started going to China, just digging straight down and all of a sudden it whipped its head out and it popped out a flying squirrel. A flying squirrel ran up Paul's leg and jumped up on a maple tree, another maple tree. And then we're all going, could this be true? And then we look up over to our right and there's an owl. Watch a whole story. It's the funniest thing. Well, I'm Grace Corson. Um, my maple sugaring career goes back probably further than any of yours. I think I think uh, Dad inherited the maple operation when he moved down to the farm in 37. My earliest memories are when I was, I think I was three, we had a team of horses and, and it was a, pretty much a one-man operation. The horses knew were voice controlled. They knew how to go from one spot to the other while he gathered. And I can remember uh, I had a gallon, uh, a gallon's uh, paint bucket I was supposed to help him with. And I can remember getting off that sap sled in the snow being so deep that I went right out of sight. And that was pretty much the end of that operation. And that's the time I stayed on the, stayed on the sled. Um, it was a great operation for kids. I guess nowadays you don't let three and four-year-olds hang out in the sugar house, but we did all the time. My name is Alan Mills. First off, I, my, my father was talked into sugaring by my grandfather and my father's hired man. Uh, my father didn't like the sugar. In fact, he didn't like maple syrup. <laughs> and if he, he loved pancakes, but he had to have, uh, well, Mrs. Butterworth. Yeah. <laughs> but he wouldn't, he wouldn't put maple syrup on there. And then about 19, oh, it was in the probably early 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, my uncle talked him into sugaring. So, first off, my uncle was very meticulous about the sugaring operation. He wanted to be involved in the tapping because you had to do it just right. You know, and I have a, what you have to do drill a hole, you know, stick a, stick a pipe in there, and that works, you know. There's, there's nothing to do. Oh, no, no. Well, we got to this one tree, and it was kind of by my, my uh, the old farm spring. And uh, so it was a huge maple, but I, I knew that it was pretty much hollow because you could see, you know, the squirrels would be going in and out of the, the, <laughs> the top, the dead part of the tree. So I said to him, he said, well, let's tap that one. I said, well, you won't get anything out of that tree. You'll just get squirrel pee out of that. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, no, no, that'll run, you know. It was a huge maple.
Later on in the season, he wanted to help me. He moved, you know, to the, all the different places, and I'd, I'd gather for him. So I said, do you want me to go over and get that squirrel pee out of that tree? <laughs> he said, yes. He said, he said, he said gather the sap from that one. So, so it would run kind of a brownish uh, looking sap, you know? So I, uh, well, I was delighted when I saw that. <laughs> you know? So I brought the bucket over to the trailer where my uncle was and I said, what do you want me to do with the squirrel pee? Pour it right here. No, no, he said, dump it on the ground. <laughs> anyway, that's my, uh, my sugaring story. <laughs> I'm Bobby Mills, and I'm Alan's wife. And I think our first date was at a sugar house. <laughs> and we went to the house to meet his mom. And she said, oh, we're at the sugar house. So, of course, it was my first date, you know, and dressed up. And I wasn't sure I wanted to be in that sugar house, but I went in there, and, of course, it was dripping the way it does sometimes, I guess, when the sap is ready. And my, my first experience. <laughs> I think we should give a hand to all these wonderful stories. <laughs> Please tell more stories to each other and to all of us and do sample some of the, the syrup that we have. Ah, uh, Grace Brigham, <laughs> thank you for coming and try the syrup on your way out. Uh, yeah, that was uh, a lovely, just real nice small community gathering mm -hmm. we got to have out here and I know I learned a lot um, from that conversation. I love hearing my neighbors talk about their connection with maple sugar. Yeah, and it, it's just, uh, it's one of those things, it's a particular way of understanding the, you know, the place that you live. We're going to close out this episode with Jesse Lawyer's final thoughts on maple. So, I mean, growing up, you know, I grew up in Richford, Vermont, and besides the dairy industry, like, the next biggest thing is the maple industry. Like, we just have maple farms everywhere. So, you know, and that's, and that's not from an indigenous perspective. I don't think where I'm from, there was a single indigenous maker of maple syrup, but growing up and just being around that, and, you know, not that I did a lot of work on in the sugar woods, but I did help collect sap and it's just, it's, it's a connection to my childhood. And, you know, I always knew that our ancestors used sugar woods and, you know, made that, but it wasn't until older and researching it and talking to elders that, you know, I realized this was, you know, our technology back in the day. And it just kind of shifted, you know, into huge sugar operate, sugaring operations and, you know, for me, I'd like to see that come back to the community. I know the Nolhegan band is, they have a patch of sugar woods that they, they work and bottle and sell. And I just want to, I want to see more of that. I mean, it's just another way to connect to our culture. You know, it was, it was a huge part of who we were and who we still are. Um, just like, <clears throat> excuse me, just like growing, you know, corn beans or squash, you know, these are things that sustain our people, you know, over 
hundreds and thousands of years. And I'd like to see us get back to a place where we can, you know, sustain ourselves again and not have to worry about the dollar to go to the store to buy something. You know, if we can, as a community, as a whole, you know, take part in the process of sugaring and share with the community. I mean, that would just light up my life, you know? This episode of Root Words was produced by Stephen Abatel and Kara Fitzbeauchamp with special guest Jesse Lawyer. Special thanks this week to Greg Cox, Grace Brigham, the people of Shrewsbury, and Bill Clark in humble remembrance for all he did for Vermont's agricultural community. If you'd like to learn more about indigenous food sovereignty or just get some inspiration for the kitchen, you can follow Jesse Lawyer at The Dawnland Kitchen on Instagram. Our musical themes are by the Salt Ash Serenaders. We are a project of the Vermont Farmers Food Center and Sage. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our local food system. This podcast has been made possible by generous support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We'll catch you next time on Root Words.